Dead Air by Scott Overton. Previously in Dead Air. With a death threat against him, radio host Lee Garrett has suffered vandalism and a close call with bleach in a throat spray. Then, on a bitterly cold New Year's Eve, his car has broken down on the way home from an event. With little hope of rescue, Lee has lost consciousness in the freezing night. Now, Chapter 10. The pain woke him up. His joints felt squeezed in a vice, and other parts of his body were on fire, nerve endings dancing in torment. Hell. It had to be hell. A blowtorch was playing over the sides of his head. He tried to brush at the flames with his hands, but he wasn't sure his arms had moved. An ungodly moan sent a chill through his spine. He held his breath to listen for it again. When he finally exhaled, a wheezing sob from close by made him dig in his heels and try to escape. He couldn't. Something was holding him in place. "'Better not to move,' a voice said, making him start. "'That just makes it hurt more.' "'Hurt more?' He'd already been dropped into a vat of salt water with his skin peeled off. Was he being tortured by a female demon? He'd have to open his eyes to find out, but his whole being rebelled at the thought. Sleep would be better. Go back to sleep. But it wasn't going to happen. Then the eyes have it, his mind wearily punned. He had to concentrate to find the muscles that controlled them. Light lanced into his brain, and he sneezed. Blinking tears away, he could eventually make out the blurred shape of a woman standing over him. The light was behind her, but he caught the impression of a color, pale green. Drab, suitable only for institutional walls and generic uniforms. Hospital. He was in a hospital. So he hadn't been far off when he'd thought it was hell. The realization wasn't a shock. He could logically accept the concept of a hospital as he could remember his own existence, but the link between them had no reality. The woman was speaking again. How do you feel? The words were absorbed like a pearl falling through oil. Feel? He felt like shit. He said so, but he didn't hear the words. Maybe that was because his tongue was a clod of dried moss clogging his throat. I'll get you a drink of water, the woman said. She left his field of vision, and a flare of pain from his ears stopped him from following her with his head. She was gone a long time. Then he felt a hand against his back, lifting. He got the idea and raised himself onto his elbows, but he was curiously weak. Something dry pushed between his lips. A straw. He tried to suck on it. After a few attempts, he felt drops of bliss spread over his tongue, and he sucked again. Eventually, he remembered he was supposed to swallow. That hurt like... Well, like every other movement he made. Feel like crap, he rasped. His mouth wouldn't make the S-H. No doubt. You came in with frostbite and hypothermia. Now that you're awake, I'll ask the doctor about getting you some painkillers. Frostbite. Cold. His body had been freezing cold. With a sudden swell of disorientation, he remembered. The car. He was in the car. He was freezing to death. He writhed, trying to escape, and knocked the water cup flying, hands pressed on his shoulders, trapping him. He struggled, but the moment passed as quickly as it had come. He gave one powerful shudder and collapsed back onto the bed. It's all right. You're all right now. You're safe. Understanding and memory came together. He wasn't in the car, not anymore. He was in a hospital bed. It wasn't a dream. The pain made it real. 
His eyes focused and found the woman looking at him with concern. Are you okay? she asked. He thought about speaking, but only risked a small nod. I'll try to contact the doctor. Just stay still and rest. He watched her leave his field of vision, replaced by the dull, white ceiling. He had an urge to look around, but the throb from both sides of his head told him it wouldn't be worth it. Instead, he lay staring, trying to project images from his memory onto blank space. Someone had come. Someone had taken him from the frozen car before it could become his tomb. Did he remember that? No, but then everything before this room felt like a dream. The memories of sensations and sound slowly came back to him, and he wished they hadn't. Chaotic noises and waves of pain from his hands and feet, something rough and hot pressed against his ears, but the pressure elsewhere felt more liquid, somehow, swirling surges of lava or ice against his skin. He couldn't tell which. There were sounds in the darkness, like curses or screams, and he had a nauseating suspicion that they'd come from him. How bad was it? What had they done to him? Did they have to amputate? He struggled against his restraints and thrust his head forward until the tendons in his neck felt as if they would pop. Where were his hands? He was covered by light blankets, but at least there were bulges where his hands should be, and two more at the end of the bed sticking up like feet. He tried to wiggle them, but tears blurred his vision. The nurse returned. My fingers? My toes? He croaked. They're bandaged. They've got frostbite blisters, and we have to keep them sterile. But they're still there. Everything's still there. Will I lose them? The doctor should really answer questions like that, she said. I'm not supposed to. He let his head drop and swallowed painfully. I heard him say you got lucky, though, she offered. It sounded like there probably wouldn't be complications. Here, Dr. Rashad said I could give you something for the pain. He'll be around tomorrow morning to see you. She put the pills in his mouth and gave him more water. Are you hungry? No. His stomach was queasy. Because if you are, I'll try to get you some soup from the kitchen. Otherwise, it's bedtime. Do you think you could sleep again? What day is it? Saturday. You were brought in late last night. Actually, very early this morning, I guess. So I've been sleeping all day? They had to give you something during the treatments. Stuff knocks you out. You still look pretty drowsy. Yeah, but can I get these things off my arms and legs? Sure, they were just so you wouldn't move and hurt yourself while you weren't fully conscious. She pulled the cuffs free from his upper arms and shins. Presumably those areas hadn't been frostbitten. He drew his arms from under the blankets and looked at the swaths of bandages. The nurse gave him a reassuring smile. If you need anything, just buzz. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and maybe I can reach the button with an elbow. If I get lonely. They say a sense of humor is a good sign. She turned to leave. Wait. Damn. What is it? What if I need to use the bathroom? You've got a catheter in right now, so unless you have to... No, not yet. Okay. As she reached the door, he asked, Do I have to dream? With the stuff I gave you, I don't think that will be a problem. He was trying to convince a nursing assistant that he didn't want another mouthful of oatmeal when Maddie Ellis came to the door. "'Sorry to interrupt,' she said. "'Interrupt, please interrupt,' Lee said. The young woman holding the spoon took the hint, replaced the tray on its cart, and wheeled it out the door. Ellis pulled a chair to the side of the bed. "'How are you feeling?' "'Nothing that half a bottle of scotch and a skin transplant couldn't cure.' 
Sit down and stay a while. I don't get a lot of company. In fact, I'm surprised to have the room to myself. Is that your doing? Not me. There was another patient when they first brought you in here, but I guess you weren't in any shape to notice. They'll probably bring another one in soon. What about you? What have the doctors told you? The one who treated me should be around later with more details, but an emergency room doctor came by for a minute this morning. It sounds like I should be okay. Frostbite on my fingers and toes and ears, but I shouldn't lose them. Barring any nasty surprises, he shrugged, I got lucky. No shit. What the hell happened, anyway? That's what I was going to ask you, Lee said. I don't even know how I got here. I thought I was a goner. Too close to the truth. Too damn close. What were you doing on the old highway on the coldest night of the year? I figured I'd take a shortcut, but the frigging car broke down, obviously. What I want to know is who found me. I don't remember a thing. I guess I fell asleep. And almost never woke up. She sounded angry, but he realized it was only because she'd been genuinely scared for him. It was sheer luck. A truck driver who lives out that way was coming home after a run and saw your flashers. He brought you in. You were pretty far gone. A trucker. Anyone I know? How should I know? A guy named Tucker. Big guy. Looks just the way you'd expect him to look. Tucker the trucker? You mean you do know him? No, it's, it's just the name. It's too much. Well, I wouldn't suggest you tell him that to his face. Anyway, the guy hung around the whole time they were treating you, and you should have seen him light up when I got here and told him you were Lee Garrett. You'd have thought I'd made his day. Lee felt his throat constrict. He coughed to clear it. I guess somebody up there likes me after all. I wouldn't push it if I were you. Alice expected him to take a week off. Lee refused. They were into ratings again, an experiment BBM had tried once before that involved ballot sampling for the first two weeks of three consecutive months, instead of the usual solid six-week stretch. He wasn't prepared to miss a week of that. He'd just need an operator to handle the equipment for him. They sparred a while over it, but the businesswoman in Ellis won out over her motherly side. After she left, Lee wondered if he could walk well enough to get some exercise. He'd been lying in a bed for more than twenty-four hours. Then he remembered other visits to hospitals. Depressing. He'd always felt like a voyeur if he looked into the doorways he passed. The occupants of the rooms were people at their most vulnerable. They didn't need spectators. Instead, he stared out the window at the drab buildings and streets, the giant spire of the superstack in the distance fountaining grayish-white effluent from the Coppercliff nickel refinery into the sky, as if it had produced the whole gloomy ceiling of cloud all by itself. Below him, just across Ramsey Lake Road, the metal snowflake of Science North perched beside slate-colored water rimmed with new ice, a fitting symbol for a city that seemed locked in frozen stillness. Or maybe it was only because it was Sunday of New Year's weekend. New Year's. He'd spent New Year's Day in a drug-induced stupor. The end of the old year had nearly meant the end of Lee Garrett. It was hard for him to connect with the fact of his mortality. Was he ready to meet his maker? He still wasn't sure he believed in one of those. But the universe had given him a second chance. What would he do with it? He found himself thinking of Candace Ross. It had been ten days since their argument, Enough time for her to cool off, or had he been the only one to feel a connection between them? Either way, he owed her an apology. He could call her. The C&IB number would be in the book, but there wouldn't be anyone in the office on a Sunday. Then he remembered that not everyone worked in radio and paid for an unlisted number. 
The thin pages of the phone book were a bitch to turn with hands wrapped like a mummy's, but perseverance paid off. She was listed. Then he looked at the phone in dismay. Even if he could manage to hold the thing, the idea of touching his ears was a non-starter. He was about to give up when he saw the speakerphone button. He prodded at it and managed to get a dial tone, but the keypad nearly defeated him. It was an achievement just to reach the hospital switchboard. He started to explain his predicament, but the operator caught on right away and put the call through for him. Candace? Hi, it's Lee Garrett. I just called to apologize for the other night. For the other night more than a week ago? Yes, at the mall. I was an ass. I wanted you to know I'm sorry. Sorry enough to call me at home? Her tone was guarded. Your voice sounds hollow. We're not on the radio, are we? No, no, I wouldn't do that. I'm on a speakerphone. I had a little problem. He haltingly explained. My God, I don't know what to say. Just say you accept my apology. That's all I'm calling for. Of course I do. It's not a big deal. We were both... Anyway, are they going to keep you for long? I don't think so. My doctor hasn't come by yet, but I'm hoping I can get out today. They probably need the bed, right? I'm not far from the hospital. I can be there in a few minutes. You don't have to do that. No? How were you planning to get home? He felt like an idiot. Candace knocked lightly on the door and took a few tentative steps forward. A pair of nurses was helping another patient into the room's second bed. One of them pulled the curtain closed around it. Lee was glad to see her. The strength of the feeling surprised him. Are they painful? she asked, frowning at his bandaged hands. Only when I move them or keep them still. He enjoyed making her smile. She had a wonderful smile. Actually, I can take things for the pain, but they're beginning to itch like a bugger. She made a sympathetic noise. Then she moved closer and lowered her voice. I'm glad you called, because I wanted to apologize to you, too. I was way out of line, interfering with your relationships. I'm not usually that dumb. She paused. Although I am usually that stubborn. She blushed, and they laughed. I'm both, he said, and Michaela is very much a sore point. You still love her? He looked into her eyes and thought about denying it, then quietly said, I'll always love her. They sat silent for a moment before he continued, But I wasn't right for her, and I never will be. I suppose I'm touchy about treating her badly, because that's probably the only way I ever did treat her. Hang on, Candace said. Did she meet you halfway? Try to be part of your radio life and share in the pleasure you got from it? He opened his mouth to come to his ex-wife's defense, but stopped to consider the question seriously. Candace was right. Michaela had never wanted any part of radio. He remembered the way her father had kidded about Lee someday getting a real job, and it occurred to him that Michaela had felt that way about it too, all those years. No, he replied softly. I guess she didn't. Marriage is a two-way street. Maybe it's time you stop blaming yourself. He looked into her eyes for a moment. You're very wise. I talk a good line. Have you been married? Not quite, she hesitated, but decided to push on. He was a good guy, but he had a problem with me setting out to save the world. He hadn't bargained for a whole bunch of other people's problems when he thought he was just marrying me. He was right. I was very full of myself. God's gift to the needy. Not anymore. Let's just say I've realized I can only change the world by trying to make a difference in one person's life at a time. 
In the quiet of the moment a doctor bustled into the room, startling them. He didn't seem to notice. Flipping through the pages of a chart in his hand, he strode quickly to the bed. "'Mr. Garrett?' His voice was a rich baritone. "'And Mrs. Garrett?' "'No, just a friend,' Candace corrected him with a light laugh. "'Oh, sorry to rush things,' the man smiled. "'I'm Dr. Rashad. I'd offer to shake hands, but I suspect you'd rather not. I think we can skip that for now. You were lucky. Maybe you have a guardian angel. So I understand.' Rashad warned Lee about the risk of infection and instructed him to have his dressings changed and checked regularly by his family doctor. You don't have to do any heavy work with your fingers, do you? Not really. I'm a radio announcer. The doctor's eyebrows lifted as he looked back at his chart. Of course, I should have recognized the name. Well, that's good. Your mouth got through the ordeal in fine shape, he laughed. But your fingers and toes will be very sensitive for quite a long time. The joints will be sore. Don't put too much strain on them. Do you wear earphones? Headphones, yes, usually. You'll have to find a way around that. I guarantee you won't want anything pressing against your ears for a few weeks. Yeah, I've already noticed that. Lee thanked the doctor sincerely, then endured one more change of his dressings by a nurse. The air outside smelled like freedom, but its cold sank deeply into him long before they got to Candace's car. She cranked up the heater as soon as she could. "'Where's your car?' she asked. "'It's been towed to my mechanics. I don't know whether I want him to fix it or just blow it up.' As they pulled into the driveway of his apartment, she said, "'I was planning to take Paul Schwartz tobogganing sometime soon. Would you like to come?' "'When it's a little warmer. I've got this thing about the cold.' She looked alarmed. "'Oh, of course. Well, maybe it's not a good idea then, or we can put it off for a few weeks.' A couple of weeks will be fine, I'm sure, he said, less confident than he sounded. He thanked her for the lift too many times, then watched until her car disappeared. Maybe he did have a guardian angel. That's the end of Chapter 10 of Dead Air. Our episode continues with Chapter 11, as Lee learns that his brush with death on a lonely winter road was no accident. He promised himself he'd never complain about ordinary Mondays again. This one had been an unqualified disaster. Because of Lee's bandaged hands, a college freshman named Daryl White operated the equipment for him. Cues were missed, phone calls were cut off, a microphone was left live by mistake, capturing the noise of Dale Lawson moving out of the news booth and Lee moving in. Lawson's presence made things worse. Trying to give her best for her first day on the air, she was full of questions while Lee was trying to get his own breaks organized. His replies turned into growls. By mid-morning, she was only speaking to him through Daryl. Lee could barely use a computer, so he'd printed off his material, but handling papers with mitts of gauze was a refined form of torture. At one point, he threw all of his pages at the wall in a rage, then had to spend two whole songs painstakingly putting them back in order. J.J. found the whole thing hilarious. Lee swore to cross him off his Christmas list. It didn't help to know that ratings had begun again. He was in a richly foul mood when nine o'clock finally came. Things got no better when he called his mechanic. Emil was a big fan of the box, and Lee considered him a friend, but neither felt like small talk this time. You figured out what's wrong with the goddamn piece of junk? Well, in this case, a Cadillac wouldn't have done any better. What do you mean? 
I checked over all the usual things twice before I finally noticed that one of the gas lines was split. The metal gas lines? Yep. There was water in the tank. Water? Lee's brain wasn't keeping up to the conversation. Water in the gas tank? Yeah, water. The stuff you like to drink and your car doesn't. A few liters, maybe. I didn't measure it, but I had to drain the tank. You can't soak up that much with methyl hydrate or anything like that. I always get my gas from you guys. That tankful, for sure. Are you saying you've got water in your tanks? Emil raised his voice in mock outrage. I ain't saying that at all. You didn't get all that water from my tanks. No way. Maybe you went through a car wash with the filler cap open. It doesn't lock anymore, right? The image was so absurd in the dead of winter that Lee would have laughed, as Emil intended, but an ugly thought had come to him. Seriously, how do you think it got there? I got no goddamn idea. Probably some asshole kids with nothing better to do. Thought it'd be a good goddamn joke to have you stuck in your driveway. Wouldn't figure on you getting stranded somewhere and freezing to death. No. But someone did figure exactly that. His stomach suddenly felt hollow. It took him a moment to realize Emil had spoken again. What was that? I said I can't see any other damage. Must have been just enough gas mixed in so nothing else cracked. I guess you can't drive, eh? I'll have a couple of the guys go with you to drop it off later. Thanks. What do I owe you? I'll put it on your tab. A friendly shot, but also a subtle reminder that Lee hadn't paid Emil's last bill. You're a prince. He hung up the phone and stared at the wall. You think what? Alice's face was white marble. Lee brushed the back of his hand across his forehead. Goddamned bandages were getting on his nerves. There's probably no way to prove it, but the water must have been put in my tank at the clubhouse. Any sooner and the car wouldn't have made it that far. To try to kill you? I'm not ready to believe that. They would have expected me to take the main highway back, and there's always lots of traffic along there. Unless they knew the old highway was your shortest way home. You're giving them too much credit. Probably just an unexpected opportunity to cause some shit for me. Anyway, Detective Davis is sending her forensics people to my mechanics to go over the car. Ellis just stared at the desk. She had no idea what to say. He drifted through the lobby on his way to the other side of the building. A figure caught his eye and he turned to ask if he could help with anything. It was the cardboard Lee Garrett, his doppelganger. Or maybe it was the real McCoy and he was the copy, both two-dimensional with painted-on faces. Who could tell the difference? On his way past the newsroom, he heard his name. He stopped just out of sight. Ah, Lee's a good head once you get to know him, J.J.'s voice. Does he have to be such a prick in the meantime? Dale Lawson. Cut him some slack, would you? He nearly froze to death the other night. That has to mess with your head. Even worse, because somebody's been threatening to kill him. Lawson grunted. I can understand why. The conversation was over. Lee quietly slipped away. Davis and some officers from the forensics unit were at Emile's garage when the cab dropped Lee off. One of the officers was leaning over the rear fender of the Volvo on the side of the gas filler door. Another was taking pictures. Your mechanic had to drain the tank and refill it? Davis asked. That's what he said. Looks like the gas jockeys took a rag to the fender afterward. Not much chance of any prints left after that. We've gone over the rest of the car just in case and taken prints from each of the workers here to know what we can ignore. Sorry. 
Never much hope, anyway. If I were handling a container of water on a night like that, I'd be wearing gloves, wouldn't you? Lee nodded. Did you see anyone acting suspiciously at this clubhouse? Was there anybody there who might want to hassle you like that? There were a few who don't like me much, he answered with a self-conscious shrug. The smug face of Ken Cousins came into his mind. Mostly we ignore each other. Well, it's a place to start. Let's have the names. You figure on having this wrapped up in an hour, like on TV? He tried to interpret her expression as a smile. Save your humor for your radio show. It needs all it can get. Two turntables spun beside his left arm. One was slowing down. The other was playing The Heat Is On by Glenn Fry. The song had about a minute left to run, and he realized with a shock that the next record wasn't ready. He reached a hand into the nearest of three long wooden boxes on the countertop to his right and grabbed the record at the front, a 45 RPM disc in a light green paper sleeve with a numbered label in the top left corner. I Never Promised You a Rose Garden by Lynn Anderson. That wasn't a rock song. He desperately grabbed the next one. The Green Green Grass of Home by Tom Jones. His heart started to hammer. He must have brought the wrong music. There was no time left. He slapped a forty-five onto the second turntable, put the needle on it, and turned the knob to put the motor in gear. Instead, the platter spun lazily backward. The turntable was broken. Fry had finished. The dead air was stretching to five seconds, six. He stabbed the microphone button and began to blather about something, anything, while he stretched his arm to the limit and one-handedly swapped the Fry record for another. There was no chance to cue it up. He flicked the table into gear and mashed the start button. Gotta get a message to you by the Bee Gees caterwauled to life midway through the second line. As he let out a moan, he saw the red light warning that his mic was still live. He swatted the off button and tore the headphones from his ears. He had to get to the music library. The floor was littered with records like a minefield. He wasted precious time finding safe places to step. At last he made it to the door and bolted down a featureless hallway, turned to the left, took the next right. Or should he have taken the left again? He backtracked, spun around. Where was the library? Where were all the doors? He could hear his panicked breathing against a background of the Bee Gees from tinny intercom speakers, the final chorus of the song. His throat constricted. He had to get back to the control room, back in control. He jackknifed into consciousness, gasping for air. God damn it! He hadn't had that dream in a long time. Would it never go away? He hung loosely over his knees until his breathing slowed, then flopped back onto the bed and massaged his forehead to rub the last vestiges of the nightmare away. Most announcers he knew were afflicted with some variation of it, a symptom of the pressure of live performance. Except it was out of date, times had changed, the days when a few seconds of dead air would get your knuckles wrapped were long gone. Once radio station owners took the route of computerized automation, glitches were commonplace. Sometimes the station went silent for most of the night because of some technical hiccup. Management shrugged it off. As long as the competition didn't do any better and profits were good, that was all that really mattered. The stockholders were in the driver's seat. He rolled over to look at the alarm clock. It'd be going off within twenty minutes. He decided to get up. A breath of winter came into the control room with Dale Lawson as she got ready to do the six o'clock newscast. She pointedly ignored Lee and got the temperature and sponsor information from Daryl White. Lee had considered apologizing, but if she was going to be a frost queen, he'd let her stew for a while longer. His resentment didn't last. When the newscast was over, he told Daryl to roll a couple of songs with an ID between. 
He pushed open the news booth door and held up a hand. Dale, you got a minute? She said nothing, but sat back in the chair with her arms crossed. The thing is, I've been going through a lot lately, but that's no excuse for being a prick. I apologize. Her expression of surprise may have held a trace of guilt, but Lee pressed on. Larry and Rob hired you to be a partner for me on the show, part of a three-way team with J.J., except they didn't tell me, never asked me for my opinion. By the time I found out, it was a done deal. I've been doing this show for ten years as a solo. I don't have anything against you personally, but, well, how would you feel? Her eyes were wide. I don't know. I didn't know about this. You didn't know it was supposed to be a team show? No, well, Larry said there'd be some ad-lib stuff, like I did with the morning guy at my last station, but no, I didn't know the rest. God, that's just like Arnott, too. He thinks he's working for the goddamn KGB. Everything's on a need-to-know basis, and he's the only one who needs to know. Was that a trace of a smile on her face? Anyway, Lee said, I'll try not to be a total asshole, and I guess we just do our best to make this thing work. Okay. Let's get together with J.J. later and work out a few things. Sounds good to me. He moved out of the way, and as she was about to step into the hall, he said, Hey, you sounded good on the air. She gave a bemused smile. Thanks. When she and J.J. joined him in the control room after nine o'clock, they spent a good half hour talking about how to involve everyone and keep the show running smoothly. As they split up, Lee said, Do me a favor and don't tell Arnott about this yet. I'd like to give the prick a taste of his own medicine. He got no argument. On Friday, he was able to get his bandages off, and he reveled in the feeling of freedom. Monday, he drove himself to work and operated his own show. It was good not to have to depend on someone else. There was no news from Detective Davis. He was becoming convinced there never would be. Whoever had spiked his gasoline had probably only meant to give him a bad scare and had spooked themselves when their prank nearly became murder. Maybe that would be the end of his persecution. Was that too much to hope? He was halfway home when he noticed the station wagon in his rear-view mirror, dark blue with a dull finish. When he made a left turn, the blue car followed him. He turned right. The car behind did, too. A shot of fear made him sit up straight. No, a coincidence. It had to be. He took a short exit ramp onto a stretch of four-lane. He didn't see the other car as he merged into traffic until a pickup truck moved to pass him. The blue car had been behind it. Jesus, what should he do? Whoever it was, he didn't want to lead them to his home. When he came to his turnoff, he drove past it and accelerated. The space behind him grew, but not for long. Then he deliberately slowed to bring the trailing car close and tried to see a face through the sloped windshield, but the angle of the sun was against him. He squinted at the front bumper. No license plate. It wasn't legally required on the front, but most people had one. It struck him as a bad sign. What would happen if he stopped somewhere? Would the driver confront him? What if the guy wasn't alone? It was impossible to tell. He gave the wheel a sharp turn to pull into the left lane and then almost immediately made a left turn onto a side street. As soon as the maneuver was complete, he risked a glance at the mirror. The blue car had followed him around the turn! Christ, his mind wasn't coming up with any answers. A startled pedestrian jumped back as Lee rolled through a crosswalk. His dark blue shadow stayed with him. There was a police cruiser at the curb just ahead, its signal light on, ready to pull out into traffic. He swallowed hard and wrenched the wheel over, screeching to a stop angled across the front of the cruiser. Then he snapped his head around to watch for the blue station wagon to pass them by. It didn't. 
he finally spotted it in the parking lot of a building just across the street. The driver was climbing out. There was a flash of a white head. Then time seemed to slow as the details of the scene filled the spaces of his fogged mind. The building was a goodwill depot. The white-haired woman struggled with a green plastic garbage bag toward the drop-off box, lifted the lid, and dropped the bag in. Chapter 12 is next in our podcast of Dead Air as Lee Garrett gets to thank the man who saved his life and gets a welcome chance to pour out his troubles. There are lots of things we all think we know about the world of radio that probably aren't true. Go to my website to see videos about the radio secrets most of us don't know. And of course, you can buy Dead Air in print or ebook. Check out scottoverton.ca. Audionautics.com supplies the music for our podcast, and the text is read by me, Scott Overton. Mm -hmm.